Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. Welcome to Talk. I'm your host, Timmy G. Looking at the news today, this piece was originally published in USA Today by Marina Petofsky, republished in The Star, Why Recreational Smashing Could Be Good for Your Mental Health. Have you ever wanted to smash something after a long day at work? Now, there's a more grown-up way to throw a tantrum. Rage rooms also known as smash rooms or anger rooms, have opened in cities around the world. and They offer a safe place for people to shatter away their anger, literally. You can hurl a plate across a room, take a sledgehammer to an old computer, or kiss a framed photo of your ex goodbye with a golf club. The first rage room opened in Japan in 2008, according to Vice. Since then, rage rooms have spread to countries from Serbia to the United Kingdom to Argentina. There are hundreds of, hundreds of rage rooms in the United States, and new ones have popped up in cities like Charlotte, North Carolina, and Tucson in the last year. In October alone, rage rooms opened in Milwaukee, Rochester, New York, Hampton, Virginia, and American Fork, Utah. Rage rooms are generally affordable, but like anything else, prices vary. In Glen Burnie, Maryland, you can pay as little as $15 for their BYOB package. That's bring your own breakable if you want to destroy some keepsakes of your own. In New York City, you can pay $95 for the couples therapy package, which comes with two electronics, like a printer or a laptop, two buckets of dishes, like ceramic plates, mugs, and bowls. In Los Angeles, you can pay up to $300 for the overkill package, which includes 100 items like televisions, wine bottles, and printers. Maxwell Luthi, director of Trends and Insights at Trendwatching, said rage rooms are unique because they allow consumers to make a memory instead of buying a product. The U.S. consumer base is also increasingly stressed, according to Luthi, from the headaches of daily life, as well as issues like climate change and politics. So he says you have an anxious consumer who needs to let off some steam, and this provides an experience for them. This is more substantial than a unicorn frappuccino. So why would I go to a rage room? Rage rooms are not just for when you're seeing red, according to Mary Babick, co-owner of the Smash Room in Daytona Beach, Florida. She has said customers have flocked to their Smash Room as a form of stress relief, not anger management. When we talk about it, we literally just talk about relieving that pressure you didn't even know was there, Babick says. We actually talk about the fun of it. Van Troy Green, who opened the House of Purge in Charlotte, 
North Carolina in May, also said the need to relax unifies his clients. I feel like there's a lot of people who need an outlet from family stress or just the stress of life, Green said. There's a lot of people who work out every day or pray or meditate, but you might like to break stuff. That first time you smash a bottle, you'll just get it. Kaki King, a guitarist from New York City, visited Rage Industries in Seattle in October while she was on tour. She said she was surprised that she enjoyed the experience, even though she does not think of herself as violent. I was the most surprised by the fact that someone like me, who's calm, peaceful, measured, not quick to anger at all, to actually be expressing anger physically, even against these inanimate objects. King called her 20-minute session cathartic and even cried in the middle of it. I really got into it in a way I did not expect, she said. Why are rage rooms so in demand? Rage rooms have become so popular because they offer a new experience that anyone can enjoy, according to Green. He has had over 1,100 visits since the House of Purges opening in May, from bachelorette parties to company team-building events to families with children as young as 8 years old. His most surprising clients? 73-year-old couple who wanted to spend date night smashing a car. They were out there breaking stuff to opera music, Green said. He was wearing a tux. Babbick said another surprise has been the majority of her customers are women. Green said women were up to 95% of his customers. I would have assumed it would have been men, Babbick said. It's funny how many women come in who never thought they would do this, but they want to relieve some stress, and they think that's a good way to do it. Babbick said she has also seen clients integrate rage rooms into their routines. She said some therapists have started recommending rage rooms to address anxiety. One man even keeps a monthly appointment due to stress at work. However, some mental health professionals doubt that rage rooms are an effective way of expressing anger. Dr. Scott B., clinical psychologist at the Cleveland Clinic, said rage rooms can be fun, but they should not substitute communication or seeking help. It's not particularly therapeutic for people who have anger problems, he said. Just because they throw something doesn't mean they aren't going to throw something again in the future. King said she embraced going to a rage room as an anonymous way of handling the pressures of adult life, adding it to her own mental health regimen, like seeing a therapist. What's nice is the feeling of anonymity, King said. I don't think the business model is set up on judging people or being curious about what their intentions are. It's a safe place to destroy things. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Now looking at The Guardian. Employers must do more to protect the mental health of staff. Healthy workplace is one where employees feel able to speak openly about their mental health issues. This is an opinion piece from Camilla Nichols. Nearly 20 years ago, I had a breakdown. I was approaching 40. I was not in a serious relationship and had no children of my own, but I was devoted to my job. Married to it, some would say. I was a senior executive at this paper. 
I fought and lost a battle with my GP who wanted me to sign off work. I didn't feel I'd have a recognizable identity without my job. She said I might struggle to live if I didn't take a break. I had five months away from the job. Sleep evaded me. Eating felt a battle not worth winning. A psychiatrist made house calls every week. I found it almost impossible to leave my home. If only had if I had acted, sought help at work, before the total slide began. Earlier this month, the health and safety executive announced that for the first time, work-related stress, anxiety, or depression accounts for over half of all working days lost due to ill health in Great Britain. In total, 15.4 million working days were lost in 2017-2018 as a result, up from 12.5 million the previous year. These figures might be shocking, but they're not surprising. My breakdown had a complex cause, but one significant factor was my attitude toward work. None of us go into our jobs as blank slates. We all have emotional scars over which we hope work might neatly stick a plaster. Insecurity, feelings of powerlessness, unresolved sibling rivalries. We often hope our jobs will fill otherwise unfillable holes. Therapy, 12 years of it on and off, has helped me to recognize I needed to be in demand. My unfulfilled maternal instincts were poured into my job, and I allowed myself to get sucked dry. I felt there was no way I could tell my colleagues and superiors that I was depressed. I feared being thought of as weak and capable. It did not occur to me to ask for time off for therapy. Now I'm a psychotherapist. Not enough has changed. Too many of my patients tell me plainly that they fear being penalized in the workplace they acknowledge their problems with mental health. Many, including the managing directors and chief executives I treat, seem to make up excuses for leaving work for their sessions. The most popular session times are early mornings and evenings. These get booked up very quickly. It saddens me that corporations that invest in cut price or free gym memberships to encourage a healthy workforce do not think of having a conversation about the equivalent for good mental health, despite the HSE figures and those that calculate the day's loss to business in the billions of pounds. It is evident to me me that we are still in need of meaningful mental health support in all types of workplaces. HR departments need to be properly trained in recognizing depression and addiction in responding to the breakdown of relationships and bereavement, and importantly, know where to turn for trustworthy support. Everyone should have the right to attend therapy during their working day if required. An admission of vulnerability by senior figures in a workplace has the potential to foster more open dialogue about mental health and to help reduce the stigma associated with it. Each personal experience shared can help. In a recent interview, Kamal Ahmed, the BBC's then economics editor, now editorial director with responsibility for hundreds of staff, talked about how therapy had helped him remain afloat during a difficult divorce. Such honesty about the usefulness of therapy will do much to encourage others to seek support without fear of careers being put at risk as a consequence. 
A friend of mine has just sent me an email address to all humanities staff at Glasgow University from the head of the school. It contains a practical list of ways staff can foster good mental health, including taking all annual leave, managing emails, availing themselves of an online mentally healthy workplace course, and online peer and professional support by trained counselors, also proposing not just lunch breaks away from desks, but also walking meetings. It was refreshingly heartfelt, lacking in cynicism, and I hope unlikely to provoke the hard-pressed staff who are responsible for so many students' mental health. Maybe we're on the cusp of a velvet revolution, but from the therapist's chair, it feels as if there is still a long way to go. Perhaps the story of Jack, a patient of mine, tells it best. Following months on sick leave with a work-stress-related breakdown, Jack returned to his city firm for a scheduled meeting to discuss the details of a phased return to work. He found crossing the threshold quite traumatic after his long absence and was surprised to be greeted by the HR director seemingly on her way out of her office rather than waiting to welcome him in. Her coat was over her arm. Oh, she said, I can't talk now. You'll have to reschedule. I've got to get to my mental health training. We can only hope she learned something useful when she got there. Camilla Nichols is a psychodynamic psychotherapist with NHS experience, currently working in private practice. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Our last article for today comes from Tonic. Judges are forcing people to get mental health treatment, but we still don't know if it works. When mental illness hijacks Margaret Rogers' mind, she acts out. Rogers, 35 years old, lives with depression and bipolar disorder. When left unchecked, the conditions drive the Alabama woman to excessive spending, crying, and mania. Last autumn, Rogers felt her mind unraveling. Living in Birmingham, she was Birmingham, she was uninsured, unable to afford treatment, and in the throes of a divorce. Although Rogers traveled south to her brother's house in Foley, Alabama, for a respite, she couldn't ex- escape thoughts of suicide, which one day led her to his gun. I hit bottom, she recalls, but she didn't pull the trigger. Rogers told her brother about the close call. News of the incident reached her mother, who then alerted authorities to Rogers' near attempt. Within days, Rogers was handcuffed and hauled in front of a judge who ordered her to undergo mental health treatment, but not a hospital commitment. Instead, the judge mandated six months of care that included weekly therapy sessions and medication, all while Rogers continued living with her family. Rogers entered assistant outpatient treatment, also known as involuntary outpatient commitment. Since its inception, The court-ordered intervention has generated controversy. Proponents say it secures the comprehensive care that people with severe mental health uh, issues might not recognize they need. Yet other health experts question the effectiveness of the intervention and suggest it represents a quick fix in a mental health system that is not adequately serving patients. Annette Hansen, director of the University of Maryland Forensic Psychiatry Fellowship, says it's a stopgap measure that works in the short term. 
She co-authored a book on intervention. But it's not a good long-term solution because you still have lots of people who need voluntary care who can't get it. Assisted outpatient treatment requires a judge's order, while the eligibility requirements and compliance standards vary by state Participants typically have a history of arrests and multiple hospitalizations. They stay in their communities while undergoing treatment. The APA, or American Psychiatric Association, endorsed its use in 2015, saying assisted outpatient treatment has generally shown positive outcomes under certain circumstances. To effectively treat patients, the position paper said, the APA recommends that the intervention be well-planned linked to intensive outpatient services and last for at least 180 days or six months. A key advantage to assisted outpatient treatment, supporters say, is that it provides care for people who might not recognize the severity of their illness. A court's involvement also increases the likelihood of a participant complying with the program, a phenomenon called the black robe effect. That is really what we found to be the secret sauce for success, says John Snook, executive director of the nonprofit Treatment Advocacy Center. But many areas do not have the necessary communal mental health services to provide assisted outpatient treatment effectively, according to Ira Burnham, legal director for the Judge David L. Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law. He also says the law already provides options for hospital treatment for people considered a danger to themselves or others. Any person recommended for assisted outpatient treatment for these reasons should be in a hospital receiving intensive inpatient care, according to Burnham, not in the community. You know, when people don't take their medication, he says, that's a clinical problem, not a legal problem. Assisted outpatient treatment gained popularity after Andrew Goldstein, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia but wasn't taking his medication, pushed Kendra Webdale in front of an oncoming train in New York City in 1999, killing her. Webdale's family fought for a change in the law after learning that Goldstein had repeatedly refused treatment while living on his own. Today, 47 states and the District of Columbia have versions of Kendra's law allowing localities to set up assisted outpatient treatment, according to the Treatment Advocacy Center, a nonprofit group that strongly supports assisted outpatient treatment. Yet there is no tally of the number of programs or the number of people involuntary placed in one, said David Dvorsny, chief for the Community Support Programs branch at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. There's also little research on its effectiveness. Two randomized studies produced contradictory results about the intervention's effect on hospitalization rates and the number of arrests afterward. However, other analyses have shown improved outcomes, particularly among participants in New York. Despite the ambiguity, Congress created grants in 2014 that made up to $60 million available over four years to new assisted patient treatment programs. Additionally, the 21st Century Cures Act, passed in 2016 to accelerate drug development, allowed some Department of Justice funding for the intervention. Experts acknowledge that the scarcity of mental health providers and treatment options causes many patients to go without care. Instead of doctor's offices, many people with mental illnesses end up in jail, 
an estimated 2 million every year, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Snook says, what we say very often is basically we have a system that allows people to have heart attacks over and over again. And then once they have that heart attack, we take them to jail. And then we wonder why the system isn't working. One recipient of federal funding for assisted outpatient treatment is Alta Point Health Systems, Inc., a community health center that provides services to residents, including Rogers, in two Alabama counties. The program has received nearly $1.1 million in federal funds, according to Cindy Gibson, Assistant Director of Intensive Services. She said the center applied for the federal grant to reduce the number of hospitalizations among residents living with severe mental illnesses. We were having a lot of people who would go to the hospital, then be discharged. They did do well for a couple of weeks, maybe even a month, but then they'd just go right back in. program, which began in 2017, has served 71 patients, Gibson says. On average, patients who stay uh, in the program will be there for about 150 days. And roughly 60% of referrals come from family members, she said. The majority of people entering have a history of multiple hospitalizations and arrests. Rogers says she had never been in handcuffs before the day the Alabama police officer came to her brother's home and awakened her around 7 a.m. The sheriff gave her five minutes to change and brush her teeth. He then cuffed her wrists, placed her in the back of his car, and drove her straight to court. After she was asked a few questions about how she was doing, Rogers says she sat down in front of a judge and learned about assisted outpatient treatment for the first time. Despite how she entered care, Rogers says the mandated treatment has brought her stability. She sees a therapist once a week, and once a month a nurse at the community health center administers a shot of the antipsychotic drug Abilify. She now is working part-time cleaning condos and lives with her mother. She said she has learned strategies to not dwell on the past. After her first six months of treatment, Rogers and her care team decided to continue care through the rest of the year. She plans to return to Birmingham and find a better job after completing the program. Right now, she says, staying positive is the main thing I want. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. In 2017, CFRC Radio celebrates 95 years of creating campus community radio in Kingston, Ontario. Over the last 95 years, CFRC's governance has evolved. Once supervised by Queen's University and later by Queen's Alma Mater Society, since 2014, CFRC has been an independent, self-governing, not-for-profit organization. Its board of directors has representation from Queen's University, the AMS and SGPS, CFRC Radio Club, and the Kingston community. Learn more about CFRC, Canada's longest-running campus and community radio station at cfrc.ca. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Podcast versions of Talk can be accessed by checking out the CFRC Podcast Network podcast version of Talk is usually available Thursdays by noon-ish after the original broadcast, which is Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Also available on Spotify and iTunes. So no reason to miss any of these enlightening episodes of Talk. This is a little piece I like to call The Great Discovery. 
William sat with a mixture of sadness, regret, and despair, having just celebrated his forty-sixth birthday only hours earlier. The dark reality of his world began to set in. In truth, William didn't feel he had much to celebrate these days. His life seemed to be one of constant struggle. At times he thought he was destined for destruction, and he made choices that, so far, had begun to realize this destiny. For decades, William had been building walls around his heart. The pain of his childhood was too great. He had stopped trusting others, he had stopped believing in goodness, and he had stopped trusting in himself. It seemed no matter what he did or didn't do, the results were always the same. More frustration, more bad feelings. William had been trying to make things better over the past few months. He had begun seeing a counselor regularly, he had been taking some self-esteem training, and he had started to explore the possibility of forgiveness. But William was once again ready to give up. He simply felt tired. He didn't know how long he could go on, not knowing when things would finally get better, for good. His hope was paper thin. On this evening, no birthday cake, no friends, his only comfort offered in the form of a whiskey bottle and the thought that maybe this would all be over soon. William was close to the end. What William didn't know was that as a result of his efforts as of late, the counseling, the groups, the courage, life had sent him a messenger. And the message carried by this individual would be arriving in a matter of days. If William was to pack it in, he would risk never making the great discovery. He would risk never gaining the insight that was to arrive and chart his path in a new and wonderful direction. The great discovery had the potential to erase past pain and upset. The great discovery was a force so simple and yet so powerful that it had changed the hearts of many people from fear and bitterness to love and openness. The great discovery loved to reveal itself just when someone had hit their bottom. If only God could rearrange William's present circumstance so that the great discovery could enter his life and change his heart before it was too late. The great discovery had revealed itself to thousands before William. Some had listened, but many had cast it aside, not recognizing the magnitude of the truth standing in front of them. They just wouldn't allow themselves to believe the message the great discovery had offered. In fact, William had come face to face with the discovery years earlier. He had been sitting on a park bench, staring up at the stars, when the message arrived. It came in a whisper, but it was unmistakable. It came in a whisper, but it was unmistakable. You are good. The great discovery, the game-changer, the tie-breaker, the difference-maker. You are good.
the great discovery is not reserved for some and withheld from others. You don't have to hike Mount Everest or get your Ph.D. in order to find it. You don't have to convince everyone around you or become famous in order to experience it. You just have to believe it and keep believing it and then remind yourself when you forget, I am good. I deserve a good life. Heck, I could even be great. Telephone Aid Line Kingston is a crisis, distress, befriending, and information listening service based in Kingston. Talk is confidential, non-judgmental, and anonymous. We are a safe place to call when you don't know where to turn. To reach our aid line between 7 p.m. and 3 a.m., call 613-544-1771. For volunteering information, please email talkrecruitment at gmail.com. Welcome back to Talk. This next piece is called Spirit Down. Simone had been in the same relationship for years. Now married with two kids, she loved being a mom and found it difficult to leave her children with a stranger while she went off to work every day. Working as an educational assistant, she was passionate about learning. Simone was often described by others as having a beautiful spirit and a magnetic personality. She was adored by those who came around her. But over the last few years, Simone had noticed a shift taking place within. Subtle at first, and then increasing in intensity, a palpable discomfort began to settle into her consciousness. Her heart had become heavy. To a few onlookers, it seemed as though her spirit had gone into hiding, a gentle complacency masking a vibrant quality she exuded in the not-so-distant past. As Simone began to look at her life at a deeper level, she came to the sudden realization that she had stopped asking for the things her heart longed for. A husband who adored her and made her feel alive, made her feel like the woman she had dreamed of becoming. At some point, she had just resigned herself to the notion that she just wasn't meant to have certain things. The cost of committing to this belief and the consequences that followed were that her deepest needs were going unmet. It seemed easier to focus on the joy she received from being a mom. She had long forgotten her ideas as a younger woman of being deeply cared for by a man who was enraptured by her beauty, her wit, and her appeal. How could she begin to reconcile the gap that existed between the longings of her heart and the reality of her current life circumstances? The thought weighed down on her. The more she avoided her feelings, and instead replacing this void with the joy of being a mother, the more her spirit quietly slipped out the back door. Rationalizing this and that it was appropriate to put her children's needs above her own at this critical period in their development, she could then go on and avoid the truth that the longings in her heart had started to wane long before her kids arrived on the scene. How long was Simone willing to allow her deepest needs to go unmet? Could she play this avoidance game forever? And at what cost to her soul? Even just considering these ideas safely within herself brought on a torrent of guilt which she would then cover up with the justification that her kids needed life to remain stable. The uncertainty of how life might change should she fully express her needs was just too overwhelming. She would quickly brush the resultant anxiety aside and focus on other things, but deep down she knew something was off. Simone had stopped giving herself something her heart had always longed for, the permission to believe she deserved what she needed, 
the courage to reclaim the parts of herself that she was neglecting. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Hello, I'm Tamara Cicerella, a counselor serving area residents who live with addictions or mental health concerns. Deeply committed workers like me assist people in reaching their recovery goals. On April 1st, Addictions and Mental Health Services in Kingston and Frontenac joins Lennox and Addicton in offering confidential, quality services. Addictions Mental Health Services, Kingston, Frontenac, Lennox, and Addington is committed to providing the best possible services to all who need it. For more information in Kingston and Frontenac, call 613-544-1356 or in Lennox and Addington, 613-354-7388. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. This piece is called The Personal Identity Crisis. What now? Jen had been juggling several different hats for years. On the surface, she seemed to be very content and in control. But what Jen didn't know was that she was catching up with herself. She didn't realize that much of the reason she kept so busy was to avoid what she was feeling. These feelings ran deep beneath the surface, and they were connected to pain from the past. She could only maintain this juggling act for so long. And then it happened. First, it was just one ball. No big deal. She could pick it up and add it to the rest. But soon, all of the balls came tumbling down her ability to respond becoming severely incapacitated. As the fear intensified, confusion filling her mind and heart, she began to lose hope. Her confidence began to deteriorate. Soon, she wasn't so sure who she was anymore. And she began to ask questions like, Why is this happening? What have I done? Who am I? Jen began to realize that she needed to look deeply inside herself and release some parts that were no longer serving who she was meant to become. The foundation that life set her up with was not built on solid ground. This breakdown was providing her an opportunity to rebuild herself stronger and more capable than ever before. It was giving her the opportunity to live from a new place, a more authentic place. As she found the courage to go deeper, what began to emerge were a handful of experiences from her past that were continuing to control and direct her behavior. Jen came to see that she was holding on to a lot of fear. Her anxiety was linked to being raised in a family that was full of arguing and chaos. Jen's desire to please others had her running in all directions, trying to make sure everyone around her was taken care of. She didn't realize that her pleasing behavior had nothing to do with the people she thought she was helping. It had to do with her need to be accepted. As long as she kept everyone happy, they would continue to like her, and she would feel part of the group. She would not have to feel the pain of rejection. Transforming these painful parts of herself required openness and honesty. 
from this new starting point, she was able to create a healthier sense of balance in her life. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. AMHS KFLA's vocational services connect employers with skilled workers recovering from mental health challenges. This free program offers individual assessments, job preparation training, and placement. Employers are matched with qualified, reliable workers and receive ongoing support for hires as they lead their lives in positive new directions. For more information, call 613-544-1356 or visit amhs-kfla.ca. Welcome back to Talk. I'm your host, Timmy G. Our next short piece is called Spirit Down. Simone had been in the same relationship for 10 years. Now married with two kids, she loved being a mom and found it difficult to leave her children with a stranger while she went off to work every day. As an educational assistant with students age 8 to 10, she was passionate about learning. Simone was often described by others as having a beautiful spirit and a magnetic personality. She was adored by those who came around her. But over the last few years, Simone had noticed a shift taking place within. Subtle at first, and then increasing in intensity, a palpable discomfort began to settle into her consciousness. Her heart had become heavy. To a few onlookers, it seemed as though her spirit had gone into hiding, a gentle complacency masking a vibrant quality she exuded in the not-so-distant past. As Simone began to look at her life at a deeper level, she came to the sudden realization that she had stopped asking for the things her heart longed for. A husband who adored her and made her feel alive, made her feel like the woman she had dreamed of becoming. At some point, she had just resigned herself to the notion that she just wasn't meant to have certain things. The cost of committing to this belief and the consequences that followed were what The cost of committing to this belief and the consequences that followed were that her deepest needs were going unmet. It seemed easier to focus on the joy she received from being a mom. She had long forgotten her ideas as a younger woman of being deeply cared for by a man who was enraptured by her beauty, her wit, her appeal. How could she begin to reconcile the gap that existed between the longings of her heart and the reality of her current life circumstances? The thought weighed down on her. The more she avoided her feelings, instead replacing this void with the joy of being a mother, the more her spirit quietly slipped out the back door. Rationalizing Rationalizing that it was appropriate to put her children's needs above her own at this critical period in their development, she could avoid the truth that the longings in her heart had started to wane long before her kids arrived on the scene. How long was Simone willing to allow her deepest needs to go unmet? Could she play this avoidance game forever? And at what cost to her soul? Even just considering these ideas safely within herself brought a torrent of guilt, which she would then cover up with the justification that her kids needed life to remain stable. The uncertainty of how life might change should she fully express her needs was just too overwhelming. She would quickly brush the resultant anxiety aside and focus on other things, but deep down, she knew something was off. Simone had stopped giving herself something her heart would always long for, the permission to believe she deserved what she needed 
and the courage to reclaim the parts of herself that she was neglecting. And so shared these three short pieces to kind of flesh out the idea that, you know, life is complex and sometimes life presents easy answers, but often the answers are less clear and more complex and require more thought and more reflection. And so making rushed, rash decisions often is not the way to go. And what these stories also flesh out is the notion that when we stop communicating our needs or we maybe we don't have the communication skills uh, in the first place. So if we think of Simone's situation, being in a relationship that that is not necessarily meeting her needs, and so oftentimes what people do in that situation is they end the relationship, not realizing that there's another way to begin to work through that gap that exists between two people, and that's through tweaking and adjusting the communication style of the two people involved. And so if it's evolved from the beginning of the relationship in such a way so as to not be meeting one or both parties' needs, then we need to change. We need to renegotiate the terms of the relationship on both sides so that we are speaking the same language, we're on the same page, and we know that when we're communicating with each other that it's landing in the right spot and it's being received properly by the other person, vice versa. And so in Simone's case, a rash decision to just leave the relationship probably isn't a wise one, especially given the fact that there's two children involved. And so it's a good reminder that when we're dealing with a challenge within a relationship, often the solution comes in the form of uh, more communication and different communication. And so that can give us a sense of comfort in a real way because we often get stuck inside of ourselves, stuck in our own heads, contemplating all the different consequences that may come from this decision or that decision. And we aren't sharing those ideas with anyone because sometimes when we share those ideas with another person, even if it's just a friend, once they're out of our mouths and into the world, it's like suddenly we've made them real. Whereas when they're just inside of our own heads, in private, nobody else knows, there's no life to them, even though they're stressful and often impacting our life in a very real way. And so being able to just give ourselves the permission to say, okay, I need to talk about this. It's not necessarily anybody's fault. It's just the way that we are in our our dynamic, the way that we've the family of origin, the, the families that we've grown up out of and into the world. We've been equipped with uh, very specific ways for loving, being loved, giving love, communicating, asking for our needs to be met or not knowing to ask for our needs to be met. Oftentimes we make a lot of assumptions in relationships. We just think that the other person should know what to do, how to do it, why to do it. And the reality is, is that we can't bank on that. We can't bank on that. We need to learn the skills and to be willing to express and state what our needs are and then work together uh, to make, to get those needs met. Certainly in William's situation, 
you know, feeling a lot of hopelessness, feeling like nothing ever works out for me, constantly having that statement repeated back to himself through his own experiences, nothing ever works out for me, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, nothing will work out for me. If that's the mantra that is continuously reflecting back to you your worth and your value and your abilities and what you can accomplish in the world, then it's going to be a long, dark path. And yet, often when things go down, when things aren't working out the way we want them to, these phrases will just automatically assert themselves within our consciousness, within our minds, and we find ourselves saying these things, whether just inwardly or even outwardly, driving in the car, through our frustration, just feels like, seems like things just don't ever work out for me. So we have to, A, we have to begin to challenge that belief, because that's just a belief that we're continuing to feed ourselves. We have to challenge that thought structure, begin to break it down, and replace it with something that's more, it doesn't have to be a Hallmark card, but it does need to be um, something that's a little bit more affirmative of, yes, our frustration, but also not the sky is falling and this is the end is, is near. And so there's been research done that shows that if you're, that whole practice of putting affirmative quotes up in your mirror so that when you wake up in the morning and you're getting ready for the day and you're going to go out, you, you're, you're starting your day by looking at these positive quotes. Well, research done that shows that if, if those quotes that you're writing down or, you know, from a book or wherever are like over the top, too positive, too happy, you know, you're going to conquer the world. Like if it's so such a far cry from what your actual feeling reality is right now, there's just too much of a dissonance there. And you actually, actually have to write uh, quotes or, or affirmations that more closely reflect how you're feeling, but tilted in a direction that can have a p positive vibe to it. William had, through his experiences, I mean, that, that would continue to beat you down if you're constantly always feeling like things aren't meant to work out for you. And, and you are, I mean, that's a heavy, that's a heavy path. And so you can forget that you are worthy of, of good things. And, and maybe William needed to, if he's continually approaching the things in his life the same way from the same angle and he's constantly producing the same results, in turn generating the same feelings toward those results. I mean, you got to mix things up at some point. You've got to try something new. And But it's, it's so tempting in those moments to just continue to beat yourself up and conclude that you're not worthy, you're not good enough, and you're not good at all. And so sometimes, often, there are, when we are trying to put the effort in, life rewards us. And it rewards us through a variety of means, but often that reward, that affirmation comes through other people. And if William was to check out early, he's not going to receive the message, the great discovery that's coming, which, which provides the antidote to all the, the stuff that he's feeling and gives him the courage and the hope to keep going for another day. That's kind of how the process of healing and recovery works, where we're getting these little doses of antidote and uh, positive vibes, little little uh, vapors of positive vibes coming at us on a regular regular cycle. 
and we got to stay in the game and keep going and that each time we get to the next leg of the journey it's like okay I got a little bit more I can I can go a little bit further and I, and I just got to piece this out take one day at a time and then eventually you know maybe after two or three or four days another piece of information comes and it fortifies us in a new way and we're able to keep going and so I think there's a lot of people that feel the way that William feels and we don't have to look any further than the news segment of talk to know that there's a lot of people who are struggling with a lot of different things but you know there's a lot of great great services a lot of great programs out there to help people support them and uh, Miss Rogers who was featured in one of the news articles great example of you know dealing with mania bipolar uh, wild mood swings and then getting stable and being able to take on work again and work part-time and and feel like she's contributing and feels good about her decisions and her direction in life. So those those possibilities are all around us. And so in Jen's story, personal identity crisis. So you grow up in your family of origin. You're equipped with a certain way that you see the world, certain feelings, certain beliefs about your capabilities, expectations of you, expectations of the world, your relationship within all of that. And so you grow up and you're you're moving through life and you're you're the type A and you're juggling all the balls and you're you're doing everything. You're wearing many hats. The human system can only take so much. But if you're if you're if you're if your sense of belonging is wired to um pleasing other people your sense of worth is wired to acceptance that's kind of the triad that you're working within then i mean it's terribly difficult to pull away from the things that give you a that, that provide you with a sense of belonging because what happens when you pull those things away and you pull away a sense of belonging well we feel alone we don't like to feel alone and that's normal we have to begin to tease out what's going on and to, and to recognize that when the balls start, start falling because we're carrying too much, we're not designed to do this much, you don't need to continue doing this much, you can extract worth and value and purpose and meaning in your life without having to do all of this, then you begin to take on less and recognize that your sense of belonging will not be erased by taking on less and you you challenge that dynamic and you can uh, to renegotiate it tweak it just enough so that you're still being productive in the world and you're still satisfying a very normal and healthy sense of needing to be accepted and belong and I mean who wants to be rejected rejection feels gross and ugly doesn't matter whether it's within friendships, within intimate relationships, applying for a job, getting fired. I mean, rejection is not a pleasant feeling for anybody. And I think that it happens a lot more even in adulthood than most of us are willing to realize. And we don't often feel the feeling because it is gross and it's an ugly feeling. And so we just kind of push it down. We don't deal with it. And the only way to deal with things in a healthy way, is to begin to feel what we're feeling and to sit with it, to allow ourselves to realize that, you know what, I'm still going to be okay. 
still going to be fine. I'm going to be able to get through this. My life is not going to end by allowing myself to feel the feelings of rejection. And so we develop new options when we're willing to feel what we're feeling. New options for us emerge. New cognitions emerge. New ways of thinking and being, uh, thinking about ourselves, thinking about the other person or people, our relationship to all that stuff. New options begin to emerge when we're willing to be with those uh, ugly feelings and make new discoveries about ourselves. And so I just encourage you, if you are struggling with something in that way, just to open up to the possibility and the willingness to give yourself permission to just take a small step back and to rethink, begin to reflect on everything that you're doing, why you're doing it, and to ask yourself a question about each of those things. What, why am I doing it? And if I was to remove one or two things off of my plate, could I still feel valuable, worthy, accomplished, but begin to exercise a little bit more self-care in my life, give myself permission to slow down a little bit, and recognize as well that I'm not responsible for meeting the needs of every person that I meet. I'm not responsible for making sure that everyone around me is happy all the time. It's not your responsibility. It's not your role. You're not capable of doing it, for starters. You're not expected to do it. And so if you put yourself in that role, then you create the expectation because the people around you now have that expectation that you have planted in the center of all that. might be a little bit uncomfortable removing that from the center. There, there's always adjustment for people in our lives within our relationships. There's always adjustment to uh, change and transition. But everybody will deal with it on their own terms and... Just give yourself a little bit of permission to step back and rethink some of the things that you're doing. Because in all likelihood, overscheduled lives are not sustainable. They're just simply not sustainable. And the way that some people manage the unsustainability of an overscheduled life so that they continue with that overscheduled life is through substance use, which can lead down the path of substance abuse which can bring a whole host of other problems in time. So be good to yourself. Give yourself permission to practice some self-care that maybe you're not used to. It's going to feel awkward at first, but it'll, just like anything, it'll, it'll become more natural. You owe it to yourself and you deserve it. If you like great music from the 60s and 70s and good covers, Listen to Frankly Speaking, music to tickle your memory bone on Fridays at 1 p.m. on CFRC Radio. Whatever you're going through, we're here for you. We are the Peer Support Center, a confidential and non-judgmental drop-in space where you can come to talk to a fellow peer about anything at all. We have been supporting students at Queen's for at least 10 years now, and it wouldn't be the service we are today without the dedication and care of our amazing volunteers. 
We also wanted to thank you, Queens. Thank you for all the students for trusting us over the years with your stories and experiences and allowing us to help support you during your time here at Queens. University can be a challenging yet rewarding time, and we want students to know that we are here for them through the good times, the bad, and the in-between. Come stop by the Peer Support Center in JDUC Room 34. We are open seven days a week from noon to 10 p.m. Welcome back to Talk. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you want to check out my new album, titled Trust, you can go to www.forgivenessg.com. That is www.forgivenessg.com. Uh, all the tracks are there in their entirety. You can check them out. And I'd like to end today with a quote that I shared earlier this week on social media. Sometimes the hard path is the right one. Respect the struggle. See you next week. This has been another edition of Talk with Timmy G on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgoche.com. That's info at timothydgauther.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety. Again, that's every Thursday from 7 to 8.30. The address, 1111 Taylor Kidd Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Till next week, be smart, be safe. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.